welcome back to Trinus Magnus, Jab's Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and just like the rest of you, I'm coming, or I don't know about all of the rest of you, but like many of you, I am coming out of lockdown. <laughs> Kinda, sorta, in a way, maybe. And I'm gonna probably elaborate upon this a little bit more in just a little while, but we are pressed for time here. So I just wanna go ahead and just dive straight into the meat and potatoes of what we're up to here today. Uh, basically, a chance conversation that I had with somebody has inspired me to uh, do a show sort of in commemoration of the fact that this year, which is to say 2020, this year is the 40th anniversary of the Empire Strikes Back, and uh, guys, we're just going to, like I say, we're going to get straight into it here. Joining me for this episode is, I guess, former two, or not two true freaks, former Dinner for Geeks uh, co-host and co-founder, Scott Reifman. <laughs> Welcome back. How are you? Thank you. Well, maybe not former. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but uh, everybody seems to have signed back on the dotted line. It's just a matter of finding an opportunity. And, of course, you can't go to a restaurant and eat, so, uh, you know, there's no premise behind Dinner for Geeks right now. But uh, everybody seems to have eased their way back on board this thing. All right, well, look, basically, I try to abide by something akin to uh, the Reagan doctrine when it comes to other members of the Two True Freaks network, where... You never, at least publicly, you never, you never fire on your own. Right? Yeah, eleventh commandment, sure. Yeah, exactly that. And so, or yeah, or the Reagan commandment, whatever that was called. And the, you know, the thing about it was like just based on statements that you made in public. The impression that I got is that, look, D for G, it was great, it was fine in its time. Everybody loves it. But some ideas, their time eventually comes. And from the sounds of things, that was very much what was happening with Dinner for Geeks. And so now you're telling me that there's a chance that it could come back. Talk about music to my ears. I mean, that's some <laughs> of the best news I've gotten in a long time. You know, yeah, I was we, never going to... Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, I, I didn't want you... Look, Robert Plant, speaking of 40th anniversaries, Robert Plant has spent the last 40 years being coy about the fact that Led Zeppelin is never going to get back together in any kind of permanent or even semi-permanent kind of way. He just doesn't want to do it. I mean, he can spin whatever bullshit to the contrary he wants, but at the end of the day, Robert Plant does not want to put the band back together. It's as simple as that. Yep. And one of the concerns that I've kind of had is that being as you and Jeff are sort of the most visible members of the quartet, you guys would probably be the ones who are getting both barrels and it kind of you know just from you know one-time listeners and it sort of made me wonder is there a point when it really does get to be kind of annoying that look people keep bugging the fuck out of me about this and the fact is it's not quite so simple as just sitting everyone down and acting like nothing you know it, it's maybe it isn't that simple you know so anyway so my point is to say this is actually very good news i'm actually happy to hear it yeah, well, good. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear it, too, because... And there was a time when I was ready for it to die, and every I, every one of us was ready for it to die. And then we all just kind of, one by one, started reaching out to each other little by little. And uh, then the subject kind of came up, uh, would you do it? And it was like, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I think so. And then we had one holdout. I won't name any names. 
but even he called me one day and said, if we can do this, this, and this, then I'll do it. And I said, well, we can do that. That's not a, that's not a problem. That's not a deal breaker. So, uh, yeah, we're just, we're just kind of looking for a place and a time and, a, and all of that. But I would say once the country opens back up, the D4G will probably open back up too. Well, uh, you guys heard it here potentially first. <laughs> I guess it just sort of depends. Um, so this is a time of celebration, I guess, in really more ways than one and for reasons that are maybe obvious and not so obvious. But uh, in any case, um, basically, uh, Scott, what happened was I was trading messages with a listener of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality earlier today. Um, longtime listener uh, of the show. I, I don't know if he wants me to say his full name on mic, but I'll just say his name is Doug. And he, he, he was asking me, he's like, so, hey, man, uh, do you have anything planned this month vis-a-vis Star Wars? Like, do you have an idea for a show or anything like that? And it, as it turns out, I sort of misinterpreted it. I, I thought, I just looked at the calendar. It's May. It's 2020. It's a year ending in zero, which means that's an anniversary for Empire. Gee, Empire. I, I don't know about that. And he, and he later clarified it. He basically was saying something specifically about Star Wars because... And honestly, I can't knock his logic on this. There's not a Star Wars day. It's not May the 4th. It's not May the 25th. There is Star Wars month. May is Star Wars month. Now, the idea of that, you know, the idea of Star Wars being too big for any single day, I think resonates with me. And I would imagine maybe even resonates with you. I thought this could be... Yeah, and I thought this could be, a, you know what? I've always said, look, I'm never going to do a show about Star Wars 77, Empire, or Jedi. Reason is because, number one, those are just too big for me. But number two, it's all been said. You know, it's all been done. I've got nothing new to contribute there. The prequels, I thought I did have at least enough new stuff that I can justify doing a movie, or not a movie, doing a podcast about them, about those movies. But Empire especially, I mean, this the idea of doing a show about this always scared the you-know-what out of me because it's like, where do you go and what do you say? So I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I can just take the easy way out and dump everything on Rifen. So, hey, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> well, uh, let's get back to you, you. You weren't really there for that, were you? No, I wasn't even born uh, when the fire came out. Wow. It, yeah, because, I mean, and it really does start with Star Wars 77 and we walked out of the theater and none of us wanted it to end and we continued the adventures and we had our toys and then we heard about this this new sequel coming out another movie coming out and my brother came home and my brother was my main source of news my brother was the drudge report for me and uh, <laughs> he, he you know he came home one day and said oh the new movie is going to be called The Empire Strikes and I went wow the Empire... and then Marvel put out an issue of their comic called The Empire Strikes and I thought well this must be the movie and it wasn't but it was pretty darn good, and uh, you know, for for me, I'm I'm following the Marvel comics. I got my action figures. I'm doing my thing. Uh, holiday special comes in there, and then uh, then we start getting some real information about the Empire Strikes Back. They reissue the original film with a trailer on it, so that we can see our first footage. And there's you know, you know how it is with a new Star Wars trailer. Mm-hmm. You get a glimpse of something. You go, what is that? And, of course, everything you think is going to be major, the biggest character and biggest creature in the whole movie, and most of it's background stuff, it turns out. <clears throat> but uh, this was this was no different. Um, 
And the other thing that I think a lot of people don't remember about Star Wars releases, the first two, uh, is they weren't everywhere all at once. You know, there wasn't a day and date thing back then like there is now. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the number of people, I remember after the dark time started to end and people started crawling out as Star Wars fans again, uh, a lot of people kept going, you know, I was there May 25th, 1977, and it kind of became like Woodstock. Yeah. You know, there just couldn't have been that many. And what they remember is going there during the first run of the of the film, but they weren't there on opening day. And same thing here. You know, this movie comes out in May. Um, and, and I knew for a fact that we, in our little town, didn't get it till school was out. And school didn't get out until early June for us. So I knew oh, it didn't come here in no. May. Yeah. Oh, no. So we, I knew for a fact we didn't get that. And, and uh, I started doing a little research. And it, you, know, you know my brain. You're my brain are a lot alike, so I know you know my brain. But yeah. uh, I had to go get the old newspaper and say, when exactly did this come out? What day was it? It's, does it square with my memory? And fortunately, it did. It squared with my memory, which was pretty much, I think, school ended on a Wednesday, and it opened here on a Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, like the very day after school got out. Oh, and... Okay. Uh, Big deal. Had the ad in the paper. Everybody got their little Boris Vallejo paint, uh, uh, Coca-Cola poster. You know the one I'm talking about? I guess not. Now, uh, Vader's in the back. He's holding two lightsabers crossed, and it's a it's a great, great painted poster. Uh, and everybody who walked in got one. Uh, they were thrown during the showing uh, repeatedly, but I'll get to that in a sec. But, oh, uh, no. yeah, so we, we were really excited the uh, the school year ended and my parents did this thing they like to do starting my summer off they would take me to the bookstore and they'd find you know I'd get to buy some new books to take me through the summer and as I'm at the bookstore I go to the magazine rack and sitting on that magazine rack is Marvel Super Special The Empire Strikes Back and I thought well this can't be the movie it can't you know the movie's not out till tomorrow mm-hmm. and I pick it up and I start leafing through and it's the adaptation of the film Oh no! <laughs> so I run to my parents and I'm begging, you got to buy that. They do. They bought it for me. And I just sat home and I tore that thing apart that night. So I going bet. into the movie the next morning, I knew every, I thought I knew everything. I didn't quite know everything. Um, but it's one of the reasons why I don't go crazy about spoilers. Like a lot of people do Yeah. because that happened to me with empire strikes back. And, and think about these spoilers that happened at the end of empire strikes back. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it made it no less an amazing, wonderful, awesome experience for me to see the movie, uh, knowing what was going to happen at the end. Although, again, there was a little bit different than what I actually saw. But uh, so we get there the next morning. We go in, Altama Village, Triple Cinema, and we go into the theater, and it is chaos. Kids everywhere. Yeah. And it is like a rock concert. When. The movie starts, everybody goes berserk. When Darth Vader shows up on the screen for the first time, there is booing. There is hissing. All those free posters start flying towards the screen. Popcorn's flying. I mean, it's just, it was a madhouse and loved every minute of it. Now, the end of it, where I thought I knew everything, the Marvel adaptation clearly says Vader slashes Luke's sword arm. And then they show the lightsaber flying away. But there's one thing they didn't show happening. What's that? The hand coming off. So I thought he just knocked it out of his hand. But no, when I see that hand fly off at nine years old, I freaked out. Yeah. That, that's, that's R-rated stuff for me. 
as a kid at that age. And uh, just I, my mind was just like, because I was going, yeah, I know this. I know this. I know this is great. This is awesome. But I know it. I know it. I know it. And then I said, what? That thing flew off. Uh, and, and you know, we, we leave the theater with a cliffhanger that basically tells us you got to buy some more toys and you got to come back in a couple of years. <laughs> and we're okay with all of that. Yeah, well, I would imagine, uh, you know, while while we were talking just now, actually, um, I, I pulled it up on my phone, the Boris Vallejo um, Empire poster. This is a beautiful yeah. poster. This is great. And uh, this, I think I just found the artwork uh, for this episode. I was actually completely out of ideas. So thank you. I owe you one. Awesome. Um, so the movie comes out and, you know, it's got this gigantic cliffhanger. Um, mm-hmm. Which side did you come down on? Were you uh, <laughs> were you on, uh, of the opinion that look, Vader is running some kind of scam? It isn't real. We're gonna find out. Or did you believe? Oh my God, the game just changed forever. No, no, I was you know, and you know, Lucas has talked about that before, where he consulted, you know, child psychologists and that kind of thing, and said, "Is this going to be too disturbing to the kids?" And they said, "No, oh, no, the kids, if they have an issue with it, uh, they'll probably just they just won't believe it." And I was that kid. You know, my, my friends and I are having these arguments. I'm going, why would you believe him? He's Darth Vader. He lies. He lies. He's, he probably, he's a bad guy. He probably smokes. And, <laughs> you know, he, he's just, he's evil. So why would you even think that he was telling the truth in this? I had zero belief in my mind that the truth was being told by that. Um, I can look back at it now and see where they were pretty unequivocal. But as a kid, um, I just, I guess, you know, I wasn't willing to accept the reality of that. Wow. So, yeah, I was, I was very firmly team. It ain't happening. It ain't real. Well, the, the impression that I got, and if you think I'm wrong, you are uniquely qualified to say so. So I'd like to hear (laughs) it. But the impression that I got is Star Wars 77 comes out. It's this huge, massive nationwide bonanza. Everyone loves it minimal expectations of empire. They basically go in wanting star Wars two. What they got was no, I am your father. Yeah. And the idea of that, the fact that it was so completely unexpected, no one had any reason they thought to think the story was going to go in that, in that type of direction. Yeah. Number one, that was a very polarizing thing, I think, for a lot of people at that time. But number two, that is ultimately what defined Star Wars fandom. You know, this was before it was a it was a really entertaining movie. People loved it. No one's life is known to be changing in any kind of meaningful way. Whereas after this, it's like, no, this is a real story now. Is that an accurate assessment of how things really went or is there something there that I'm, that I'm missing? Is there more to it than that? I, I think actually maybe there's less to it than that. Really? Uh, oh. Yeah. Well, I, and I say that because I, I, a couple of years ago, my buddy Riley, you know, Riley Blanton, right. From star Wars report. Yeah. Um, he was doing kind of an ongoing feature where he would have guests on the show and he would say, you know, what, you know, what do you think star Wars is? You know, why is star Wars the greatest film saga of all time to you? And, you know, and people were coming up with, well, the mythical connections of the this and the that and the father and the son and the, you know, and and the roots of the religion and blah, 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 blah. And 
he he said, you know, I'm going to ask you this question too. So when you come on, just just know that that's going to be there. And I thought about it for a little bit. And I started down that same. Well, Joseph Campbell said, "Hero of a Thousand Faces," and I started thinking about it for a while. And I thought, you know, when I walked out of '77, in '77, I remember coming out of that was Lanier Theater, by the way, Lanier oh. Twin, not the Altama Triple. But um, I remember walking out, going to the parking lot, and I remember turning to my brother and saying, that is the greatest movie I will ever see in my life. And my brother, oh, you don't know that. And, of course, here we are to this day. Um, I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't say that because I saw some mystical connection, some deeper story, some, you know, reson something about it touched my mind, my imagination, um, and, and touched it on all of the deepest levels as a child at, at six. I, you know, it, it. my life had already been changed. The game had already been changed as far as I was concerned. And honestly, the entertainment industry as a, as a business had already changed permanently because of the first Star Wars film. So I, I think I think Empire gave it the ability to come back and be better thought of in retrospect than just, you know, a, a kid's movie. Mm -hmm. But I, I think. I think we were already at the point where for, for a lot of us that were there at the time, kids, Star Wars had already changed us. It had already uh, perverted us. You know, we were, we were kind of already there. And so that's, you know, when I, when, when Riley asked the question, you know, you know, why is it the greatest? And I just went, you know, because it, because it found a way to rip your imagination out of your head and put everything that you could have thought of or wanted to think of onto the screen and make it, and do it in a way that makes it believable. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know that empire really changed anything at the time. In fact, really it was, it was a little divisive. And the, the lay P I think the people who were fans were fans, but the lay people would kind of go, yeah, you paid $3 to go see a movie and you don't even get an ending. And that kind of became a joke at the time. You know why well, you don't even get it. That means you just got to come back. Well, they're just money hungry. It's just greed. Mm. And, uh, but you know, as kids, I don't think we saw it that way. I think we just saw it. This is, you know, it's more imagination. It's, it's, it's more, you know, you got walkers and you've got tauntauns and you've got Yoda for crying out loud. You got a puppet that everybody's believing in. Uh, you got cloud city. You got that epic duel between Luke and Vader and, uh, you know, the nine-year-old brain again, not really processing things at a deeper level. I mean, I'll, I'll, let me give you a, a good example of not processing things at a deeper level. Um, I was probably, Oh, I was probably 18 or 19 before I started hearing people complain about how dark empire strikes back was. And because to me, it was the funniest one of the bunch. I always thought this was funny. There's a bunch of jokes. There's a bunch of good jokes being told you know a bunch of funny moments uh i didn't see it as dark i saw it as more star wars great adventure and a lot of fun and, and so yeah i i you know I, I don't i don't know that we thought of it as something deeper at the time but we thought of it as something more for whatever that's worth well the the narrative that's been set forth all yeah. right and again, the the accuracy of this, I'm in no position to confirm or disconfirm, at least up to a point. But the narrative that's been set forth is that Empire ultimately was pretty divisive in its time. There were people on board with it. There were people who were, shall we say, less approving of it. 
and really Star Wars 77 and to a degree Jedi. Those are the real crowd pleasers of the bunch. And Empire in its time was kind of regarded as sort of the black sheep. But then once that generation started coming more prominently of age, it's like everything. I mean, I'm starting to think every generation does this. They they maybe reappraise certain yes. things. Yes. And um, in this case, the the beneficiary of this generational reappraisal was the Star Wars trilogy in general, but I, perhaps most particularly Empire, such that by the early 90s, you know, 91 to, we'll say, 1992, people were really starting to take another look at this movie and say, actually, you know what, this is this is a great movie, you know? And there is, um, you know, Luke's Dark Knight of the Soul that he struggles through in the movie, um, but there's also, there, there's a... There's a life to it. There's a sparkle and a wit. Uh, Harrison Ford's chemistry with Carrie Fisher. If it was, it, if it was not as good as it was, the movie might actually have suffered. Say whatever you want about the talking frog. <laughs> if that had not worked, then Luke's Jedi journey would not have worked. But I would say that if, mm. if the chemistry between Ford and Fisher hadn't been as spot on as it was the levity wouldn't have taken root. And so the movie would end up kind of lopsided as a result, would not sure. be as well liked as it is. And it's one of those rare things where the movie kind of found its audience a little bit more as time wore on. Is that an accurate thing or, or, or was it on the playground when school started back up the next year, everybody loved empire. Oh yeah, we we still loved Empire. We loved Empire at the time. In fact, I I would I would challenge a lot of the current narrative and say that Return of the Jedi kind of became dismissed by a lot of people at the time. In fact, I I've seen a real reappraisal of Jedi in recent years. Um from from a lot of people who were kids and that was their first Star Wars movie at the theater and that kind of thing. Um but at the time that was really I think more dismissed than Empire Strikes Back. In fact, you know, uh the whole endeavor came crashing to a halt right after Return of the Jedi, when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, it did well. It did better than Empire at the theater, but also tickets were about 50% more uh, because they, well, they deliberately jacked up ticket prices for that. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that or not. But um, Jedi yeah, was... I think you mentioned that. That that was low. That was yeah. so low. Yeah. I mean, so what low. they did is... Yeah, nice. Nice. Uh, no, what they did normally is they would take a percentage of the tickets, and this time they came to them and said, We're give, you've got to give us a fixed dollar amount per ticket when Return of the Jedi came out. And so, uh, whereas tickets in our market were normally $1.50 for kids and $3 for adults, uh, when Return of the Jedi came out, it was four fifty for adults and two fifty for kids. Oh, and that man. was, yeah, that was the only movie that was charging that kind of money. Um, but, but, you know, so that that didn't sit well with a lot of people. And uh, it, it, I think Return of the Jedi was kind of considered a little kiddie at the time. Uh, and the Ewoks didn't help any because people, whoa, these little teddy bears take on the whole empire. Well, that's just ridiculous. You know, and we kind of we kind of view it in a different light now, in a different prism. Um, but I, And I'll even go so far as to say in the early 90s, Premiere Magazine did a series of, of screenplays, just released a bunch of screenplays. And they had, um, they had two different series. They had the classics and the popular films and they did all of the scripts for the original trilogy. And when they first put them out, they put star Wars and empire out as the classics 
and Jedi wound up in the popular films category. Ooh. Yeah. And you they were distinctly differently packaged in that the uh, the covers of the classics were black and the cover of <clears throat> the popular films were red. So, I mean, it was no mistaking that. And and over time, over the next couple of years, they reclassified it and put Jedi back into the classics area. But uh, and repackaged it obviously in a black cover and that kind of thing as they had done. But so so you know I, I think all of these things get reappraised over time. Well, and yeah, I mean, fair enough. The there's some there's some kind of weird fixation that my family has with second films. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. <laughs> but sometimes it's only when you look back at something you're like, wow, that is kind of weird. But it's like for the longest time. The only Godfather film that we had in the house was Godfather Part Two, and that and that's one that's largely regarded as the best of those bunch as well. Although not by me, sir. I'm a first <laughs> Godfather movie fan, but anyway, I love um, them both. And, um, but you I, know, no, I love all three of them. To tell you the truth, I love. Yeah, I, yeah, I won't. You won't. You've heard me. You've had me. Heard me have this argument with Jeff before. I won't slag three. No, I won't either. Not even uh, Sofia Coppola. I will defend everything. It's great. <laughs> It's funny. Not as good, perhaps. No, no. Uh, but it's funny. I was telling Garrison in the car on the way actually back home. We were talking about the Godfather films, and I said, you know, uh, people as much as people slag Sofia Coppola's uh, performance, they really nobody mentions how bad Michael Jr. is. <laughs> so I've never, yeah. I've never actually heard anybody criticize his performance. And he's not in much of the movie. Don't get me wrong, but he's pretty awful when he is in it. Yeah. No. And I, I certainly agree with that. Like I say, so uh, the only one we had in the house of the three was Godfather Part Mm 2. The only one of the Superman movies that we had in the house for the longest time was Superman 2. And as it goes for Star Wars, the only one that we had in the house was Empire. Now, that was a bit of a problem for me, especially when I was younger, because I'm... I've got a weird obsession with Star Wars 77, and it's not just the Death Star thing. I mean, that... That's like probably half. Okay, I'm willing to admit that, but that's not the totality of it. But for the longest time, the only one that we had in the house was Empire. And I had trouble connecting with it as a kid because I I, I don't think I would have articulated it this way. But I, it was maybe a little bit too cerebral, especially the stuff with Luke. He's in the cave and he's... Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he's confronting his inner demons. I mean, this. I mean, it, it takes the form of Vader because that's the the specter of fear with which he's most familiar. But his true enemy is himself. Yes. And that's an easier thing to grasp as an adult. But when you're eight years old, well, we all know how much the kids love existentialism, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> so whereas, you know, Star Wars 77 there's nothing in it that's going to challenge, you know, this kind of simplistic view of the world that children tend to have. There's an honesty to it, mm. but incomplete. And so it's basically Luke slaying the dragon, you know. And even as a kid, I understood that what he's doing should be impossible to him. And the fact that he's got this inner faith combined with a connection to the Force, combined with a teacher who is invested in him, invested in his success— these are the things, the the love, loyalty, friendship, you know, those are the values that ultimately carry the day. And that's a very unifying message. Ain't a whole lot unifying about empire, you know, and the moral complexities and the grays of everything. You kind of have to be a little bit more of an adult to really savor that stuff. 
And so as a result, Empire was always the one that I struggled with until I guess the rite of passage age for something like that's about like what would you say? Like twelve or thirteen? Something like that? Yeah. I think yeah, I think once you start to get into your teenage years, you start to mature and you start to think about other things and and, and girls. But uh yeah, I, I'd say yeah, twelve, thirteen's probably where that's you start thinking a little deeper on these things, yeah. And so um I guess what I'm trying to say is I've always kind of regarded like one of the reasons I use nothing but Star Wars 77 music for these Star Wars episodes is because there's something about that movie. It's like that's Star Wars at its Star Warsiest for me, <laughs> you know, and that's nothing against Empire, the Yoda theme, the Vader theme or Empire theme, uh, I guess. I love that stuff. It's great. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the real marrow of what star wars represents to me it always is going to go back to star wars 77 and there's an argument and i don't really cotton to the special editions really one way or the other to me when it comes to star wars change is bad (laughs) but there is an argument and I'm, i'm i'm familiar with these arguments that to the degree there's any kind of creative success with the special editions at all Empire is the one that benefits the most. Is that something that you agree with? Are you a special edition guy? How how does that work for you? You know, a lot of it has to do with what the change is. I've always said when when the special editions first came out in '97, I said there is one just abominable thing in every one of these movies. Um, and the first one to me it was the Greedo scene, um, and in Return of the Jedi to me it was the Jedi Rock scene. Um, in the Empire Strikes Back scene or Empire Strikes Back Special Edition, uh, it was Luke yodeling when he jumps off the platform in Cloud City. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, they have removed that from later releases, and so I, I feel a little better. But then they added Vader and Jedi going, no, so, you know, you, you, you take what you can. Um, but, yeah, I, I think Empire probably does the best. And one of the places where Empire really benefits from the Special Edition stuff is – one of the thing again, one of the things that's amazing to me about Star Wars movies and, and it was they were always trying to find ways to break new ground. They were always trying to do things they'd never really done before. One of the things they hadn't done a lot of is this space stuff, this blue green blue screen stuff, or composited stuff um, that was in daylight and on light yes. backgrounds, no less. And in order to try to minimize those matte lines, one thing they did was they they created a degree of opacity on some of the elements. Yes. So in the original Empire Strikes Back, when they're showing scenes from inside the cockpit of the Snowspeeder, you can see right through the cockpit. Yeah, there's this weird translucence. Yeah. yeah, and and they did that again to minimize the matte lines. Well, when it came time for the special editions, they recomposited everything, and they did it digitally, so it erased all the matte boxes, which were plentiful in the space scenes, and particularly Empire, and uh, and and made it so that they could solidify these things without any matte lines on uh, the Hoth battle scenes and the Hoth snowspeeder scene. So in that respect, I think Empire really did benefit probably more than anything else because uh, you didn't see the number of kind of matte boxes on the space scenes that you did in the other films. You saw some of it, but not not to the degree you did because there were so many different elements uh, in those shots. And uh, again, the Hoth scenes just really brightened up because they were able to recomposite them and actually solidify the objects and make them not so see-through. I agree. And the, and honestly, when it, when it comes to that, now the idea of that, I could actually 
eh, half-ass justify tweets. Yeah. You yeah. know, one of the criticisms that I've had about the special editions is that, look, I could be wrong. Okay, I, I, I. There doesn't seem to be accurate information about this, and this is not to speak of the fact that I don't care what anybody says. As much as I love George Lucas, <laughs> the guy is very rarely honest with his own history, especially Absolutely. his own creative process. Absolutely. So, my understanding and is that basically for the for the 20 year anniversary of Star Wars 77, not the trilogy, just 77, basically Lucas approached Dennis Murin of ILM with like five or six shots that he wanted to completely revamp for a theatrical re-release of the film. And this apparently took place like 1994, 95 and through there. And so basically Murin said, okay, well, we can do that. Okay, we can absolutely do that. These six shots, we can probably have them, you know, the, at that point, the film had already been remastered. And so um, it would, it, I'm oversimplifying it a bit, but it would be a, a relatively simple matter of just at that point, plunking it into the movie, you know, mm. Murin said, we can do that. Here's the thing. My list of problematic shots with Star Wars 77, it's a lot longer than just these six that you're giving me. And that doesn't even touch on Empire and Jedi. So if we do this, I would like to be able to do it right and fix everything. And the workload being what it is, the theatrical window that they're working with, they don't have enough time to do everything. And I've always thought that has always been the Achilles heel of the special edition. If they had basically eliminated, I know this is sacrilege, guys, but just hear me out. All I care about in this context is doing the job right and really anything that is a model shot replace that with cgi something that isn't going to have matte lines isn't going to i mean it may have other problems but it won't have that and basically wholesale reinvent every single visual effects shot i mean you're talking about a process that could take as far as anybody knows three or four or five years i mean you're basically have to take the entire film back through post-production and no one is willing to do that just for cost no. alone. But then you get into the idea of, you know, the purity of the film. When does this stop being the original that everyone loved? And there's a whole philosophical debate you can have about that. My yeah. point is that what Lucas originally intended for the 20th anniversary of star Wars 77 is allegedly it's very different from the reality of what we actually got. Now, how real any of that is, how true any of that is, I don't know. But it does seem to account for a lot of the problems that, to this day, have never been fixed. And I think also, though, I think also the special editions were a little bit of an experiment. I mean, one, they yes. had to clean up. I mean, you know that they, they went to go to the original film and the, the negatives were just horrible. Yes, they had they had nothing, and they had to basically digitally scan everything and clean it up anyway, uh, which led us to our THX re-releases, which then led into the special editions. Um, but I think also there was a little bit of an experiment going on. I, I think the the prequels are starting to percolate. Yes, at this point, um, and and it's been said before that the Shadows of the Empire thing happened purely because the special editions got pushed back. So you know they had they had promised all their licensees. Hey, we're gonna have a big uh, we're gonna have a big release for you, and then all of a sudden they didn't have a movie, 
And so they went, okay, we've got to slip this in here. And so that's why they started calling it. It was a movie without having a movie because they had a soundtrack. They got the production pipeline also. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I think the special edition also, and I, I don't discount anything you said because I think I think you're dead on a lot of stuff there. Uh, but I think part of it also was it was a little bit of an experiment to see uh, how can we push this stuff, how far can we push it when we start making these prequels? Can we build a CGI Jabba? Well, turns out yes, but probably you need a better one. Um, you know, can we digitally insert Boba Fett into a shot and make it look seamless? You know, can, what can we do digitally and and create an interaction with currently existing footage and so you know when you look at the budgets for everything uh new hope had i think a 10 million dollar budget just for the special edition and the other two had five million so the real focus was let's get the first one up let's get it up and running let's see what it looks like and let's see what we can do to play with it and we can take what we learn into the next big thing which is kind of what lucas always does i mean a, a lot of the stuff that he he learned doing young indiana jones he threw into the special editions and then threw into the prequels uh, yeah. as far as doing you know practically a digital back lot and that kind of thing um so yeah I, I think i think that plays a part in it as well in addition to what you said right well and the i can't help i mean it's a, it's a funny thing to to criticize too much because people can crap all over the special editions all they like and I'm certainly going to join in on that <laughs> but at, at the end of the day there is look I worked in a supermarket in the the summer of of 1997 cuz I was just about old enough and uh you know it's time to get a job when when you get to be that age right <clears throat> mm-hmm. and I I saw something that I had never really seen before, and that was little kids playing with Star Wars figures. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to that time, yes, there were new like the Power of the Force line from Kenner had come out. Five, yeah, yeah, and that was very successful, very popular. Um, but I got the idea, the appeal of that line, at least to start with, it was primarily to do with the original generation and those who had kind of grown up with Star Wars and they were getting to a point in life, settling into careers and stuff where they kind of wanted to revisit their childhood and maybe collect higher quality, let's face it, higher quality versions of the same toys they had when they were kids. Mm. I don't remember a lot of kids in 1995 and through there falling in love with star Wars. But the minute the special editions hit theaters that changed. And I would see kids coming into um, the supermarket at which I worked, they would buy those toys or they would come in carrying them because kids don't, sometimes they don't like being separated from their, from, from their toys. And oh, yeah. I, f- I found a Han Solo action figure in the parking lot. This was, I guess, Bespin Han. Um, and I guess it had fallen out of somebody's car or just whatever happened, happened. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, I guess it's mine now because who knows who this thing belongs to. <laughs> and, you know, I like Han. You know, it's sure. cool to have. And I guess what I'm trying to say badly is the special edition, it was a it was a gateway into the trilogy that as good as the not criterion collection, what was the name of that fancy pants laser disc criterion? Yeah. 
Are you talking about are you talking about uh, Star Wars? Or are you talking about just yeah, in general? Yeah, no, specifically for the one oh. for Star Wars, that big black box. It was like oh, 1992 yeah, yeah. or 93 that that came out, whatever that was. Yeah. Definitive collection, that's what it was. Yeah. Definitive yeah, collection. Yeah. And then 1995, you had the Faces, the famous Faces yep. release. Yeah, those were the THX remasters, yeah. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with those. I love those, but there was something about the special editions, perhaps the fact that they were in theaters. Mm-hmm. That was the killer app that a lot of kids needed to get into Star Wars. And it basically was the perfect setup. Say whatever you want about the quality of the prequels. This was at least the perfect setup for the prequels. And it gave kids a gateway into the trilogy that to, up to that point did not exist. Like, where where are you on that? No, I, I, I think you're very right on that. I mean... Um... Star Wars kind of came back. I mean, you know the story, the drill. Star Wars kind of came back to life in 91, but that was through the publishing program. Yeah. And and then through the comics. But again, comics at that point weren't kids' things anymore. Uh, they were young adults and older adults. Um, the toys came back in the form first, really, of bendums. Um, but I can tell you, I don't remember ever seeing a kid buying those stupid bendums. I remember I bought a butt pile of them. I remember seeing friends buy them, but I never saw kids buying those Bendems. But the Bendems kind of led to that resurgence of the Kenner action figure. And, uh, you know, when I look back on it, I say, well, they were designed for the kids of the era because they were all these muscular, super exaggerated things that everybody was doing at the time. But I can't tell you that I saw a lot of kids buying them. And I, I think that's probably why the next wave went much more realistic uh, because that was the audience that was buying them. And really, honestly, kind of, it's back to that now. It's the, uh, you know, the adults are buying them. The other day I was in the store and I bought five of the six new, uh, the retro figures, which are, you know, practically the exact figures they put out in 1980 on practically the exact card that they put them on in 1980. Um, but yeah, I, I think the special editions probably were a big gateway to the kids seeing it. And, you know, when Jedi came out, they actually gave away a, a figure for that, a special Luke Skywalker Jedi Knight figure for that showing, that first showing. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that's wrong. And I think it was a good setup for the prequels as it was intended to be. But, uh, yeah, I, I, again, it was an opportunity to get back in front of the kids again. And can I go off on a tangent? I know you go like tangents. Um, oh, yeah. Recently, there was a podcast with one of the Disney Imagineers talking about Galaxy's Edge and how their original plan, their original plan was to do uh, original trilogy stuff, Tatooine and that kind of thing. The Cantina specifically, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Kathleen Kennedy kind of nuked it because, well, that's what the 50-something-year-old kids like. Let's do it based on the sequel trilogy uh, so that the young kids can like it. And, And the... Uh, I'm not even sure what the word to use here. The obtuseness, uh, the, the, the missing the point there entirely uh, astounds me because the point of this original trilogy is it's the one that resonated then and continues to resonate now. It's the one that you can still pull out and show to the kids and they just they go crazy over it to this day. Um, to, to act like it's just a thing for 50-year-old guys, um, it's just not the case. It, it's kids of all generations of all ages come to embrace those films. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's your bedrock if you're going to do something like that. And, and don't get me wrong, I really like Galaxy's Edge a lot. I've spent some time there, uh, and, and I think it's fantastic. It's a neat place to explore. But the truth of the matter is, it had its struggles out of the gate, and I think that's part of it is that it was so unfamiliar, and people were looking forward to seeing a Star Wars thing that was familiar. They wanted to walk in the environs that they had seen as kids, and they wanted their kids to be able to see that as well. Um, gigantic misstep to try and dismiss this original trilogy, which is really, again, it's the bedrock of Star Wars. Well, the, and I absolutely, I absolutely uh, agree with that. Now, the minute I say that, you know, my inner contrarian wants to say that <laughs> um, it's understandable that, you know, Disney having paid all those billions for, uh, well, we'll just say it is for this brand, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I, I don't think anybody denies that with the Lucasfilm buyout, what they were really buying was Star Wars. It wasn't oh. Indiana Jones. It wasn't THX. No, was, no the, the 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 price actually the price the the purchase price was solely calculated on Star Wars. Right. And so, in relation to that, the I I, I can kind of understand the mentality of look. We need to build into tomorrow. And right now, the sequel trilogy is tomorrow. That's what people are going to be rem- that's what people are going to remember about the things that we produce. And I under it's like I understand that, but it's like, number one, I just think that's just kind of I- I've tried to steer clear of too much criticism of Disney over their management of Star Wars on my <laughs> show just because, I mean, that's an entire rabbit hole that we could go down all by itself. But it's like, especially when it comes to Galaxy's Edge, this is the biggest, most ambitious um, theme park or attraction or just whatever that Disney has done in a very long time. Oh, yeah. And the idea of putting anything less than your best foot forward on that, to me, is just completely insane. I mean, I would even argue against... As much as I love like a lot of the design elements of the prequels, places like Naboo mm-hmm. and Feed City specifically, um, Coruscant and all of, all of that stuff, as much as I cherish that stuff, the bedrock of Star Wars as an amusement attraction, at least the starting point, has got to be the original trilogy. And let's yep. face it, I personally don't really care to go to a Dagobah type of thing (laughs) so really what does that leave you know and the cantina is the most obvious thing yeah you know and you can even have it as a functional restaurant you know i mean there's just so many and it's it 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 pains me the amount of because imagineering i mean people think of that as kind of a funny sort of word it's a that doesn't really exist and it doesn't really mean anything. That is a hell of a job. And the idea that you're going to use up all of this R and D all of this time, all of this money, all of this, let's face it. The, the one big push that you're ever going to have for a star Wars attraction. And you're going to focus on that. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's um, look, and there's time for that. But when you when you roll it out on the public, I I think the public at large was expecting to go to places they'd seen and knew and loved before. 
and that's not what they got. Now, that having been said, the Flight of the Falcon attractions, uh, technologically a marvel, not as fun as you'd like it to be, but that Rise of the Resistance attraction is amazing. I mean, it, is, it, it really is brilliant, amazing, kind of a pastiche of new technologies all working together. It's it's fantastic. I wouldn't trade it in particular for anything, but uh, yeah, to, to suggest that the original trilogy doesn't resonate with kids... <clears throat> Uh, I just, I just think that's a mistaken notion. I, and I, uh, I tend to agree with that. And, you know, in terms of, you know, like the actual topic here, it's kind of funny that we're talking <laughs> about this like right now. Yeah. Um, because a member of the Trinus Magnus face, uh, rather Trinus Magnus punches reality Facebook group actually just shared a link to a, a BBC.com article. And I mean like right this moment, right? I just mm. got the notification uh, on my phone. And the the title of this article, this could be rustling to you, and I apologize in advance, you know, so trigger warning, but <laughs> the title of this thing is Why the Empire Strikes Back is Overrated. And the little subsection here says, the general consensus is that the second in the original Star Wars trilogy released 40 years ago is the best. In fact, it's to blame for the franchise's problems, writes some jack-off who I will not advertise for. <laughs> now, I'm thinking that a lot of this comes down to, no, I am your father. And basically, the creative pressure that has put on every single series of movies since that time to come up with something that is saga-worthy, you know, your saga-worthy moment. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that to be true. I'm just going by crap like this I've read in the past. And I guess, you know what, maybe that is fertile ground for discussion in whatever time we have remaining here. Uh, how are you doing on time, by the way? I'm yours. Oh, okay. Let's All do right. it. Um, the has, no, I am your father. Has that created an expectation among audiences for a twist? That now this is not just a simple sequel, this is an actual saga that has actual meat on the bone with actual characters. Did this ultimately work against the idea of franchise filmmaking? If no, I'm your father doesn't happen. The prequels don't happen. And for some people, that's a great thing. But for me, it's not, uh, I love the prequels. I love, I love George Lucas's imagination. And I think, um, uh, no, I think uh, I am your father makes things happen it brings people it put butts back in the seat uh it got people talking i mean it was it was a major buzz point um you know one of the things that that uh i had a conversation with about with some friends the other day was um the last jedi into rise of skywalker rise of skywalker didn't open as big as last jedi why not one of the reasons i think is because last jedi is kind of self-contained you know, they go through the battle, and then it's over, and then they fly off, and, and that's it. And you know that there's a saga, a greater story out there, and yay, and so what. But let's go back to Avengers Infinity War versus Endgame. Yeah. Infinity War ends with the snap. Sorry, spoiler alert. It ends with the snap, and the entire public spends a year memeing the disintegration of people that they know, you know, memeing 
uh, different scenes of the film and talking about that snap and what does it mean and how is it going to be resolved? And what, Hell, that was so almost th- my Halloween costume. Did I ever tell you that story? <laughs> no, no. Uh, basically, I was going to smoke my – this is – I'm totally serious now. I was going to smoke my way through a, a, a carton of Marlboros <laughs> and I basically just save the ashes and then leave a big bowl on my desk at work saying something like Thanos was here or something like that. <laughs> and – you know, it, in the end, you know, it, it was uh, ill-conceived, but that yeah. was a huge moment in pop culture. I agree with yeah. you. Sorry to interrupt. And, and, yeah, well, it became a it became a talking point until the next one came out. And I'm your father was the same thing. Uh, you know, it, for anybody who talks about any div- divisiveness surrounding the film, and I don't I don't know how much of that really was out there. There were a couple of bad reviews, but there were bad reviews for Jedi, and Pauline Kael never cared for the '77 film. So I mean, you know, th- there were always there were always people who who didn't like it, were critical of, were trying to buck the uh, the the mainstream flow of things. But if I'm your father, isn't there? I don't know that Return of the Jedi is as big a deal. Um, that becomes the thing. Um, you know, we've well, got that to ask, is the issue of people. that movie. There's no question. Yeah, and uh, and it became the thing. You know, the, the two things really: Solo and Carbonite. What happens there? How do they free him? How do they get him back? And two, how do they resolve the issue of, of Vader being Luke's father? Uh, and, and those were major points of discussion in the culture. So I think if you take those away, I think you diminish the trilogy. Right, but has that put pressure on other writers and other filmmakers to have a similar moment? Almost like to justify their 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 place or their existence. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Rogue One? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I honestly, yeah. if I'm being completely honest, I could give a shit about yeah. uh, about that movie. I'm I'm sorry yeah. if you like it. You no, know. I, I do like it, but I'm, it's not insulting to me that somebody else doesn't. Um, but it's a movie that doesn't really have a twist. It's just got a story to tell. Uh, you can tell a good Star Wars story without having a giant twist. You know, it's it's kind of like I think M Night Shyamalan is is having to figure that out because. Yeah. It's at some point with him after Sixth Sense came out and then Unbreakable came out, I think it became kind of, he felt like it was a demand that his movies have to have a twist. And when the movies are about the twist, suddenly they become a lot less appealing as movies. And he kind of fell down for a long time because that was, you know, that was the thing. Uh, and, and he finally got it a little bit back with Split. Split had a twist at the end, but it wasn't, it wasn't about the plot. It was just kind of a. It was a it, reframing, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, it turned it into a whole different movie at the end. But uh, if that scene hadn't been there, Split would have been a fine film and it would have been a big hit. So he had to figure out that it's not about the twist. You can have a twist, and twists are interesting and intriguing, but it's not about the twist. And and you know, Star Wars to me isn't about the twist. In fact, I, I think uh, the revelation of Leia as the sister in Return of the Jedi seemed like a rushed conclusion because it's really not about the twist. And that's probably the biggest twist in that film. Well, I mean, I've wondered about that a few times because I, I had occasion to watch empire, I guess it was like a month ago or it was something I kind of recently, you know, because again, lockdown. Yeah. (laughs) But I had occasion to watch it and there's this kind of really pivotal fateful moment when Yoda talks about another, Yes. Right. And first off, just from a just, you know what, for the moment, to hell with whatever else is going on in the movie. Just the way that 
little sequence is shot is incredible. You know, with the lights and they're fading around and everything. But then yeah. there comes a moment when Yoda is bathed in this kind of eerie looking red light. And he says, there is another, meaning yeah. another hope. Yes. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know. Um, it does not really. I mean, we find out the answer to it, but it never pays off for any real reason. Right. And I, I kind of wonder about that. Like, the, there were different creative agendas happening in the Star Wars trilogy at different times. I don't think anybody disputes that. George Lucas was not the only one who had an opinion on certain things. No, Gary and Kurtz I've, was very, very opinionated about this stuff. Oh, yeah. And I've wondered more than once. You know, but especially during this most recent rewatch, I've wondered at the moment that Yoda was bathed in that kind of spooky looking red light. Was the other that at least Irvin Kirshner was thinking of or somebody not George Lucas, maybe Gary Kurtz, who knows, but somebody was the other that they were thinking about Darth Vader. Because ultimately he was the other. You know, I mean, what does mm. what really does Leia contribute to to Return of the Jedi? I mean, she does some stuff, yeah, but I mean, yeah, you could, but, in theory, you could have cut her out of the movie and not really missed a beat. Whereas, yes, yeah, she's not a hope, right? Whereas, we'll just we have to at this point, you know, the accuracy of characters' names, it really does matter. Anakin's actions at the very end of the movie when Luke is getting introduced to Old Sparky. Anakin's actions in that moment, this is what what you realize is this is what every literally everything else hinges upon. Anakin's actions in that moment. And the fact that it's Anakin that acted and not Vader. He was the hope, the other yeah. hope. He was the other. Luke did everything I think that Luke probably could have done to destroy the Sith. But at the end of the day, it's going to be in Anakin's hands. And it makes me wonder. That moment when Yoda is bathed in the red light, is that an allusion to Vader's lightsaber? Is basically, are we supposed to take from this that somebody was originally thinking two or three or four steps ahead? We need to foreshadow the turn that Vader takes back to Anakin now. And I've just, I've wondered about that. I find that interesting. I find that very interesting. Obviously, as you know, Obi-Wan says the other is your twin sister blah 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 but they never do anything in that film to have her take up that mantle and become that hope which is uh you know as much as i love those films that's not great writing right you, you don't set up something like that and then never pay it off it's pointless although if you read star blaster magazine uh the other is actually yoda's uh twin who's been flying in Adoy. orbit yes yes <laughs> Who's been flying in orbit in an egg? Uh, he is six foot tall and purple and winged. And when Yoda dies, he hatches and leads the rebellion. So, God, and you know what? Just to think, there had to be some number of kids back in 1980, 81, whenever that that magazine came out. Some number of kids, those poor things, they had to have picked that up, read mm -hmm. it, and believed it. Oh you know? yeah. <laughs> oh yeah and and by the way yeah the imperials had a uh when solo was taken off for some reason job of the hut's not even an issue here when solo was taken off he was taken to an imperial planet full of carbon frozen rebel prisoners 
and uh, Adoy gets those guys free, and he leads them in the battle against the Empire and destroys it. It's great. It's a great. Oh, <laughs> oh man! Hey, you got to give him credit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Those fly-by-night publications. I got to tell you, I loved um, them. Just to kind of circle back to uh, the special edition for just a minute, yeah. just because yeah. I've got ADD here. Um, uh, I kind of. I can see where some of the pro empire special edition types, I can kind of see where they're coming from. Perhaps most particularly with the, the Falcons approach to the landing pad and Bespin, right? Yeah. That is just those glory shots of, and it's, it really does a lot to kind of better establish and flesh out what Bespin is and what it's all about and everything. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. I don't necessarily welcome it, but I, I don't specifically have a problem with that. But I must tell you, the one revision in the movie that I really do object to um, was introduced, actually, of all things, in 2004. It wasn't part of the original special edition, but this was Ian McDermott's cameo appearance as <laughs> the Emperor. Yes, now, there there is a degree to which you know what it does kind of make sense because McDermott played the Emperor in Jedi, and so you could see this. This isn't even really a change; it's a correction. I understand that, and there's even a sense. Like I say, I even kind of agree with it. I would probably fully agree with it if the dialogue was the exact same. Yeah, but it's not. The Emperor actually has slightly different lines here and there and even some of vader's dialogue is a little different and yeah this is one of those things that say whatever you want about the monkey idled woman and the discontinuity that creates with the emperor as we see him in jedi i buy it you know yeah i, I was i, I was I, gonna say i don't think it's that different i don't think it's different enough to be a thing yeah oddly enough matching up the actor is of all who would have thought that would create more discontinuity, but yet yeah. here we are because life takes us in weird directions sometimes. Yeah, well, part of that too is that that the makeup job on him looks much more like his episode three makeup, which is not entirely consistent with his Return of the Jedi makeup, and uh, he should look more like he did in Return of the Jedi than he did in episode three because it's you're talking about one year later versus twenty years after, twenty three years after. Yeah. And when it comes to that, I, I got nothing, dude. Sorry. <laughs> it's just I don't I don't approve of that change. I don't like that change. It's just the, the older I get. And what I must emphasize is um, the. Well, if we're going to go there, there's another little change I'm not a fan of. Oh, go for it. Yeah. Re replacing Boba Fett's voice with Tamora Morrison. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like the original Boba Fett voice. And there's a thing that, that, for whatever reason, some of these filmmakers don't seem to understand. And it's a problem that Clone Wars has, too. And that is, you are not born with an accent. Uh, every clone that is made on Camino doesn't have to have a New Zealand accent because you're not born with an accent. If you're a Mexican kid born in Mexico of Mexican parents, but you're raised 100% in America in the Deep South, you're going to have a Southern accent. Yes. You're not going to have a Mexican accent just because that's where you were born and that's what your your lineage is. Um, it, it's, it's always bothered me that they felt that they had to overlay that accent onto there because y you don't have to. 
it's uh, you know although although I will also say you could probably make the bigger argument for Boba having that than all the rest of the clones because he was directly raised by Django but still I I like the original delivery I like the original line and and honestly it's got a little more punch the recording does than the recordings of Timur Morrison doing those same lines right and the thing is when Morrison was doing it I am not trying to throw shade on him as an actor he's actually really quite good as an mm-hmm. actor Sure. But the thing is, I get the idea that he was basically dragged into an ADR studio. Somebody <laughs> threw him the lines and they said, just yeah. say that. You yeah. Know? And so there are times when he actually sounds almost like bewildered. You know, I, he, he, <laughs> the, the line that stands out to me is um, basically Vader and Lando are going back and forth with each other. And then there's this moment where Boba uh, sort of butts in and he says, he's no good to me dead. Yep. And he says it with this just cold, just icy delivery in the original cut. Yes. And it's it's just another reminder that, hey, this is not a guy to be fucked with. Okay, this yes. is a guy you need to respect. Whereas Morrison's delivery, he's like, he's but he's no good to me, dead. And he sounds like <laughs> just so passive. And there's one thing Boba Fett should never be is passive. No. And no. it's... And, and- and he's really he's really kind of in that scene speaking truth to power. I mean, nobody talks to Vader like that. But he's being very basically saying, look, I'm not in this if he's dead. I'm out. Yeah. You know, you can do your <clears throat> thing or whatever. I'm done. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm basically he's making a, a small threat to Vader. And again, who does that? Well, no one if they if they value living. And this is yeah. one of those times when I think, look. Canon to me is what's on film. If it ain't on film, baby, it ain't canon. But if I'm prepared to grant canon status to anything that is not on film, of all things, it's a work of fan fiction. Um, I think it's called The Darth Side. And there's this section, and it takes place during the, the Empire Strikes Back sort of general era, where Vader basically describes his relationship with Boba Fett, where he's really the Empire's go-to guy. If there's an area, uh, if there's an assignment, or if there's some uh, region or something like that that the Empire, for whatever reason, just doesn't, they can't afford to be seen going into, or they don't have time, or just whatever. If they need to hire an outside contractor, it's always going to be Boba Fett. Now, for Mm. appearance's sake, they always have to recruit a bunch of bounty hunters. Sure. But it's Boba Fett's assignment. Boba Fett understands that. Vader understands oh. that. The other bounty hunters do not. They think that yeah. this is a level playing field. But it's really not. No one expects them to to to, to succeed. And the, the actual blog is it's a lot more eloquent than anything I'm saying here. And I do encourage people to check it out. I like that idea. You know, the idea that as much as... Well, maybe not as much as the Empire, but as probably more than anybody else, Boba Fett is the only equal that Vader could ever accept. Mm. And because in their own weird kind of way, they sort of come, they come from the same place. Yeah. In a strange sort of way. And I just, I I dig that. So. No, I like, I like that a lot as well. And it, it, uh. Oh shoot! I forget what I was going to say about it, but it was it was it was good and profound. So just accept that it was good and profound. Fair enough. All right. Well, <laughs> and if you if, if you remember it at any point, feel free to to uh, interject. Now, yeah. 
one of the things that I think John Williams really excels at, we touched on this a little bit before, but I do kind of want a, a little bit more exploration on it now. One of the things that I think John Williams really does <clears throat> uh, excel at is continuity mixed with innovation. When you bring him back uh, for successive movies in a same series, he you can expect a lot of reprise, but you can also expect a lot of new new material as well. Yeah. And huh? Yeah. Um. Yeah. And from the standpoint of creating new themes and textures and moods and everything is the empire strikes back the most creatively successful of Williams scores, like specifically as a sequel, or do you think he's done better ones? Say temple of doom? No, I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I think it may be the greatest score he's ever done. And I don't like to single out OT stuff. I, I'm one of those guys that I like, let's view all of Lucas's stuff as one movie, and I don't like to set them aside or set them apart. Um, but but Star Wars is so brilliant, and it's probably one of the most brilliant, wonderful film scores ever. And then he follows it up with Empire Strikes Back, which takes everything that's there and builds on it in so many amazing ways. Um, I I think that not only is it a success, I think it may be the best thing he's ever done. And I know Gardner and I kind of go back and forth on this because I think he thinks the Superman the movie one is. But look, Williams is in a zone from about 75 to about 84. Williams yes. is in the zone that just it, it it's undeniable the impact that every one of these melodies has had between that time period just about uh, has had on our culture. But uh, when you when you take the entire catalog that he put together for Star Wars from the main theme, Luke Skywalker's theme, the rebellion theme. Uh, to Princess Leia's theme, uh, you know, to the the desert sound, the Jawas theme, uh, the last battle, the throne room, and then on top of that, you then work in Vader's theme, because Vader had a motif. I don't know if you remember this or not from Star Wars '77. He had a motif. Yeah, that no, a little, no, no, no. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, that's the Death Star's motif. Oh, he had kind of a diddle little little lane. And when he'd come on, he kind of did a little, 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 and that was kind of his thing. Um, but all of a sudden, you flesh out this Imperial March, which is amazing. And it is Vader's theme. And then you throw Yoda's theme on there. Yeah. You take you take Leia's theme and you kind of, you, you, you do kind of tweak it a little into now it's Solo and the Princess because now they're they're kind of a unit in there. Uh, there's just, there's so much, the, the, the ad theme with the pianos in there, you know, when he goes into the cave at Dagobah, you talk about innovation, he's got electric guitar in there. Yeah. Um, he's got, well, not electric guitar. I'm sorry. He's got a synthesizer in there. He's got electric guitar in episode two. Uh, but he's got synthesizer in there, which he hadn't had before. And it makes sense because of the, the surrealness of, of the situation, you know, it's not real. And now suddenly we've introduced an instrument that's technically not real. Um, I, I, Williams' score to me is absolutely brilliant. And if you remember when Oscars came around, uh, it was nominated. I don't think it won, but it was nominated for an Oscar, as it should have been. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, go ahead. I'm, I was just saying, how many sequels get that kind of love at the Oscars? Return of the King. <laughs> yeah. Godfather, Return of the King. Kind of it. The um... color of money, if you want to stretch it. but <laughs> What's that a sequel to? The Hustler. 
Hmm. Oh, Magnus has got to do some film work now. <laughs> I did not know that. I guess yeah. I... Hmm. All right, well, um, now one of the... Th and this is kind of off topic, but kind of maybe not. I mean, speaking of part twos, right? Yeah. Um, there is a... Um, a uh, John Williams uh, 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 piece that has always meant a lot to me over the years, and uh, that's the uh, the love theme from Attack of the Clones, mm. and Cross the Stars. Yep, that's the one. And it's I remember the first time I heard it. I remember thinking this is a gorgeous piece of music, and yeah, it does kind of end on an ominous note. But sometimes in life. You know, Scott, you've probably been there a few times yourself. It's like sometimes in life something happens and you can kind of see the future a little bit. And in that moment, the first time I, I heard that piece, uh, I said, look, I don't know what the future is going to bring. I don't know how things are going to play out. But if I ever get married, I am playing this. I'm going to find a way to work this in somehow, you know. And, you know, obviously you get married in the Catholic Church, you use their music. It's really as simple as that. But what I was able to do, um, I put together this three hour so long uh, playlist for my reception, right? And the idea was, um, I thought it would be probably like the most, probably the best approach to this would be music that has some kind of importance to me or to Stacy or to the both of us, it's not too loud, it's something people can ignore, but they can, or they can pay attention to it if they want. And what I noticed during my reception a year ago, uh, or almost a year ago at the time you and I record this, is a lot of people were shazamming the stuff that I had playing. One of which was, da 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 da, across the stars. Now I did kind of cheat a little bit, this wasn't, this wasn't the track that's called Across the Stars. Um, this was, I think, track number 11 or something like that on on the soundtrack, but it's it's basically the, the arena. Uh, ah, yeah. And so this is the moment when Anakin and Padme, they just, you know what, we're gonna die, so let's and just lay our cards on. Yeah, she confesses to him, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, and it is track 12, Love Pledge and the Arena, so yeah, I called it. And, um, and so they just they lay their cards on the table right now. It's like it doesn't really matter what we say to each other now because neither of us are still going to be here in 10 minutes, you know, and then they survive. And now they're kind of left with, OK, well, we both of us, we just rolled a pretty fucking big matzo ball out there. So now what do we do? You know, and, it, you know, it does kind of taper off near the end, which made it perfect for editing, because now I can just cut out the battle stuff and just have that love theme at the beginning. And it was it was just a very happy moment, you know, like this thing that I've been thinking about for all these years, and now here it is. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, Lovely. Deep, well, deep meaning. And you want to talk about foreshadowing. I mean, go back to episode one when you have Anakin's theme, which, you know, every, every major phrase of Anakin's theme clearly ends with part of the Imperial March. And... Yeah. Uh, and uh, then, of course, the, the parade at the end, which is obviously the Emperor's theme in a major key. Yeah, and sped so, up, uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it plainly, uh, the, guy's, the guy's paying attention. The guy's on his game. Absolutely. And the I'm, I'm the guy in the room that I can defend 
Um, maybe not everything about the prequels, but I can defend the music all day and night. There is not a... I, I don't have a word of criticism about the scores. Now, we can debate amongst ourselves, did we really need so many tra so much tracked music in episodes two and three? Hmm. Different conversation for a different day. I tend sure. to say no. Yeah. But the the stuff that Williams was responsible for doing, I mean, I, I'm kind of to the point where I think it's impossible to overestimate the creative contribution that he made, especially to the original trilogy, but really all of the movies or the three and a quarter that I choose to recognize as canon. The, <laughs> the, the movies that I have the deepest investment in, I cannot overemphasize his contribution to those films. They would be different, lesser, perhaps bad without him. And, and starting with the first one. Especially with the, first the first one. one. I mean, yeah. let's, let's say that first one has some you know, the time when you were doing spacey things, you had to have a synthesized soundtrack. Yes. And let's say you go back and get one of those and stick that on there. This this movie suddenly becomes a movie that doesn't resonate. This suddenly becomes a movie that is dated, and it becomes a movie that is kind of a joke. Um, when you put that sweeping, lush score in there with a full orchestra, uh, it becomes something that you have to take a little more seriously. And it benefits the tone of the movie, too, because it, it it's this little subconscious reminder that this is not science fiction. Yeah, yeah, you know? great point. This is that, a, It's a myth. It's not just a fantasy, it's a myth. Yeah, and it's this grand, sweeping thing, and it has to be in the old Hollywood tradition of these grand scores, yes. lush, rich strings and horn sections and everything. And you're absolutely right. Like, if you had scored that thing like it's 2001 or Star Trek The Motion Picture or, or or what have you, I mean, you could even... You could actually damage this. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree. Well, thank you. Um, now, how, how are you doing on time? Because I think we're actually a little bit beyond your window now. Uh, we, we are, and I got people poking their head in. But you know what? I'm yours. I told you I'm yours. I'm yours. Okay. All right. Well, we basically ran through just about everything uh, of major substance that I wanted to talk about. Mm. One of the things that I'm sad to say, I don't have a deep yeah, tradition of or history with is specifically original trilogy merch. I, there was a little bit of uh, <laughs> Jedi, but not very much. Uh, in terms of figures and play sets, vehicles, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, how would it be fair to say that the Empire toys lived up to your hopes or were there some letdowns? The biggest letdown was that I could not afford $50 for no toy, uh, which is my mom's favorite phrase from back in the day uh, when they finally made an ad at um, and, and it showed up <clears> in the stores and I showed my mom's, I've got to have that. I've got to have that. And her response was, I ain't paying no $50 for no toy. Um, so if, if that can be considered a disappointment, I guess so. But no, I, I loved I loved so much about the toys. Um, I guess the first toy we really all got from Empire Strikes Back was Boba Fett because he was a mail-away figure. Yeah. The movie really was not even a glimmer in, in our eyes yet. And time out, um, time out, time out. Yeah. Um, 
can you? I, I've heard this so many different ways. Can you just please, for the record, clarify <laughs> this once and for all? Okay. The uh, the original uh, uh, Boba Fett mail away uh, figure. Yes. True or false? That had a launchable missile pack on his back. Um, ninety eight percent false. Um, what what it had was uh, a, a missile pack on the back that was originally designed to be launchable mm -hmm. and the Battlestar Galactica toy line that Mattel put out. And I have those actually as well. Uh, Mattel put out a, a Battlestar Galactica toy line in I guess late 78. And it had the same type mechanism in the colonial Viper and the Cylon Raider where you could press a button and launch these little red rockets. And a kid in my state, Georgia uh, died from uh, sucking down one of those missiles and suddenly, you know, it became big national news and Mattel got in big trouble. And Kenner said, wait, 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 wait. We've been engineering this Boba Fett figure to launch a missile. And in fact, in the ads uh, on the back of the card, it showed the missile launching. Uh, when you got it, you expected the missile to launch because you, you had your Battlestar Galactica toys. Mm -hmm. And um, it, didn't, it was fixed. It was fixed in place. Uh, there are prototypes that exist with a launching mechanism, both a... Uh, what they call an L slot and a J slot, um, which is basically the, the the shape of the slot that the the lever is in that allows you to launch it. Uh, oh, yeah. The J slot's a little more secure. Um, there are prototypes that did it, but they never manufactured one that actually launched. It, it was always glued firmly in place. So when you got it in the mail, uh, you, you took it out expecting it to launch, and it didn't. I see. Okay. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is because I've seen – no one ever seems to have a picture or video or something just undeniable, but I've heard, I, I, I've seen uh, uh, blog posts, I've seen articles, you know, here, there, and everywhere. Uh, basically, all of these claims from people who say that no, my Boba Fett mail away had the launchable missile. So I, I wanted to clarify on that. Now I, well, I interrupted you just a minute ago. Now what were you saying? No, well let, let's go back and talk about that. In that, uh, you know. You can also see lots and lots of claims that said, no, when I went to the theater, the big scene was in the film. Uh, even though there's no cut of the film that ever had the scene you know, that was released to the public that ever had the big scene in it. Uh, people remember things uh, based on clues that they have sometimes and not based on real memory. And the clues, I think, in that instance would be the, the ads on the back of the cards that showed the missile launching when, in fact, it actually didn't when they got it. Um but Boba Fett was the first real toy we got. And Boba Fett's an amazing toy. He's an amazing action figure. There's so many questions to be asked. There's so many story possibilities there. Um, you know, the biggest shame of Boba Fett is his lack of screen time, ultimately. Um, but the first figure in the wave in the stores that I got was Lando. And I remember really distinctly going to Kmart and seeing that line of uh, Empire figures finally hitting the stands and on the pegs and and going, okay, this Lando guy is one of the new good guys. I'm getting him because I need to beef up my good guys. And uh, you, know, <laughs> the, you got the Snowtrooper. I'm I'm in love with the design of the Snowtrooper. I think the Snowtrooper is amazing. Yes. Um, again, wish I could have seen more of them in, in the films, even the later films. It seems like we could have brought them back a little bit. But uh, love that design. Love those figures. Um, you know, they... they uh, they put out a, I'm trying to remember the name of the playset now. They put out a playset that had a, a walker. It was Hoth Ice Planet was the name of it. Right. Hoth Ice Planet. And it had a you know cardboard background with an AT-AT 
and that's about the most some of the closest some of us came to that. Um, they did two exclusive sets with Kenner, or three, ex- no, two, two exclusive sets with Kenner uh, of Empire Strikes Back figures through Sears, um, the hmm. Rebel Command Center, which had the same exact base. The base for Hoth Ice Planet was a white recasting of the Land of the Jawas playset. The same uh-huh. base, Land of the Jawas was kind of tan with a cardboard sand crawler. This was white with a cardboard AT-AT. And then they re used that base and made it into a rebel command center, just gave it a different cardboard background, uh, came with, came with different figures. Um, and they also though made a cloud city playset. It was completely cardboard, kind of like their original, uh, cantina playset, mm-hmm. um, completely c- cardboard, but it came with a carbon freezing chamber. It came with a solo investment outfit. It came with an Ugnot. Um, it, it was, I think it came with the three PO with the detachable limbs just off the top of my head. Um, but it was amazing. I, I loved it. Loved every bit of it. It didn't last long cause it was made out of cardboard, but, um, it was, it was a great toilet turret probot probot place at the Imperial attack base may be my favorite, uh, Kenner original star Wars playset of all time, besides maybe the death star. Uh, but the, uh, the Imperial attack base is amazing. Wonderful toy with all kinds of different little nooks and crannies and, uh, action features in it. Uh, so no, I, I, I don't think that toy line was disappointing at all. Uh, the biggest thing that was a disappointment was the, the price point on the Walker at 50 bucks, which at the time, you know, early eighties, and you got to think the recession right about then too. Um, not something that could happen, but otherwise, no, no complaints about that toy line. Amazing toys. Well, and that's the thing, like the, um, the generation of that time, they really do seem to have. I think more than any other. Like, I've got fond memories of uh, Kenner's uh, Dark Knight collection and then their Batman Returns uh, line. I've got so many fond memories of of those toys. But it's like, in yeah. the end, how many of those did I hold on to? And the answer is zero, you know? Well, but the um, big problem with that line, though, is it was a lot of other characters and 78 Batmans. Well, yeah. And <laughs> honestly, I mean, for me... That wasn't a bug. That was a feature. You know, mm. it was mm. um, I, I like the idea of not to get too off topic here, but I, I did. I did enjoy the idea of uh, especially, you know, since I was more conversant with the Silver Age or not Silver, the late the mid to late Golden Age of uh, Batman with all those different uniforms he might wear. Mm. That was already on topic for me with those comics that I was collecting and. You know, things like the greatest Batman stories ever told, like all the volumes and everything. Mm-hmm. You saw stuff like that. And so for me, there was already a rich tradition of that. Even if the movies didn't include it, the comics that I read did. So I was able to rationalize it like that. I had nary a negative word to say about about those figures, except for if I was like really being picky, the lack of articulation in the knees. Otherwise, no real complaints, you know, hmm. but like I say, in the end, how many of those did I end up holding on to? And the answer was basically none. Hmm. Whereas the Star Wars kids, they may eventually have gotten rid of their toys. A lot of them didn't, but some of them did. Huh. And I got the idea that those who did, it was with regrets. You know, it was not necessarily what they wanted. I've always thought that being as Star Wars was the first line of action figures as you and I know them. 
that I mean, they really were the first. There was something. It, it was far more than just an affection for the film. This was true nostalgia and fandom of arguably the purest type. So I don't know if you agree with that, but I've I've kind of wondered oh, yeah. about that myself a few times. No, they were they were our best and and most favorite toys. Uh, we I, you know as we say this, I went and grabbed off the shelf. Uh, I have a shoebox, and because I don't big gigantic display case and I don't have all these little action figure cases. I have a shoebox. And my shoebox I'm pulling out. I've got my Probot from my turret Probot set. There's my solo Bespin from my original uh, um, Sears play set. There's a Claw 2. There's Bib Fortuna. You know, at Reyes. I've got all these guys in this in this box. They're my original guys. And you know, I've thought from time to time about you know, do you sell them? Do you get rid of them? Do you say, no, you don't. They're, they're, they're my guys and they've been with me all my life and they're with me right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, they're not even in a fancy display. Like I said, they're literally in a converse, no, excuse me, they're a Reebok shoebox. All these years. Wow. <laughs> well, all right. So, um, I think your family is probably mad enough at me as it is right now. So, uh, before I let you go, uh, do you have yeah. any parting shots? Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you, you think you need to mention? Um, just, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see because this, this episode will be around for a while. It'll be around for, uh, long after we've had this discussion, it'll be interesting to see if there's continued reappraisal of these things. Uh, because I think there often is. And um, as far as the Empire Strikes Back goes, again, I don't separate these things from each other, but I think it is uh, it was an amazing way. And I think it was the necessary way to continue uh, this 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 property in the era that it came out, because uh, it was so Toyota, you know, it was everything. Well, let's go back and talk about something that you mentioned earlier, which is you said, what is it with the second the second film, second movie in a trilogy yes um and and i you know you named a few when we talk about godfather part two but you also talk about you know lethal weapon two far and beyond far oh and my above god to me. that was another one that we had yeah. in the house. how did i yeah. forget that it's another one that far and above the best one in the in the series and and there are a lot of uh there are a lot of seconds that didn't quite go as well i mean ghostbusters and that kind of thing but um i think overall what happens with a lot of these great second films is people analyzed the first film, figured out what really worked about it, and then said, let's do that, but better. And that, to me, is what Empire Strikes Back has that, that works so well for it, and including the ending, which I think at the time really was the biggest point of criticism for the film, was the cliffhanger ending. But really what they said was that the serial elements of Star Wars are what worked best for it. Let's make it like a real serial. And let's have a cliffhanger and you got to come back, not next week for, but unfortunately in three years for. Um, so I, I, I love that film. Again, I don't play favorites with these movies because I love all of them so much. But there is something special about going to that movie and absolutely not being disappointed. Seeing Vader being at his most Vader-y. You know, seeing the ties, seeing the X-Wing, seeing... You know, everything that you... That the executor. You, oh, my God. How did we not... Yeah. Make it? yeah. Well, and the reveal of it. The reveal of it's the best part. Because the reveal of it is, hey, here comes this giant ship passing over their head. It, this is the Star Destroyer. Remember how that ship passed over your head and it was so enormous in the first one? 
Well, now there's a couple of them. And now there's something that is casting a giant shadow on these huge ships. You know, they took a moment to remind you of the scale of those Star Destroyers and then said, oh, by the way, this thing's going to eclipse those. And then you get the full shot of the executor. Wow, yeah, that was a that was an amazing moment in the movie. Yeah. Yes. Great reveal. And again, it just... It, it, they took and, it's, and, and, and it parallel, or rather, it accompanies Vader's own reveal. That's the first yeah. time we see him in the movie yep. with a gigantic Imperial theme and it's swelling. Oh, God, that's just so good. <laughs> so good. But yeah, they took everything that was great about the first film and figured out how to make it better and more. Um, the other, the only other strange thing is there's no one real space battle in the film. Yeah, no. But you've got, but you've got the Adats. You know, you got that fight on Hoth with the snow speeders and everything, and that that works for me. Absolutely works for me. Um, so I, you know, I, I I knew when I was a kid that when I was much older I would still be talking about this film. I knew when I was a kid that that my course was locked in, and that movie helped lock it in. <laughs> well, uh, I want to take uh, the time to thank you for taking your time uh, from what would have been probably a more productive day. <laughs> Thanks for joining in. It was uh, it's, it's always a blast having you. And um, totally. now, uh, I don't think you and I have made specific plans yet, but I do want to bring you back at some point to get a couple more uh, Spider Girl comics knocked out. Ooh, um, yeah. I I dig that series, man. I dig that series. Yes. It's, so uh, we need we need to make time for that. But um, and uh, good luck with possibly, maybe potentially bringing. Uh, D4G out of mothballs. We'll see how things go with that. And um, just so you know, I'm not going to release this episode tomorrow, but I'm thinking within the next few days. This is going to be a pretty short turnaround. So there's something to keep your eye on um, for that. But uh, uh, basically, uh, what I want to do is finish up my um, the Savage Dragon component of this B7 Men or disrupting the comic book industry thing that I'm working my way through. Just want to get that out of the way, then release this episode. And so, like I said, it's going to be pretty quick. So, uh, but otherwise I think that's pretty much it for right now. So bye everybody. I will see you, I guess at this point in a couple of days, talk to you soon. <laughs> we awesome. are out. Woo-hoo. Awesome. Man. I appreciate you doing that. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. 
Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. everybody, Magnus here. In 1992, seven men disrupted the comic book industry. And it was awesome. It's hard to find a comic book publisher that launched with more anticipation, excitement, and hype than Image Comics did. Now me, I love Image Comics. So much, in fact, that beginning in March of 2020, I'm embarking upon a brand new epic mega-series. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. 
I'm taking a fond look back at a handful of early image titles. What was good? What was bad? What were some missed opportunities? Well, things couldn't have been too horrible because those comics sold millions and millions of copies. So join in on the fun with me and take a fond look back at the comics of yesteryear. These seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. Atrenus Magnus Punches Reality Mega Series beginning in March of 2020. Only at Two True Freaks dot com. How about you? This is it. This is it. We're just uh, just literally walked in the house about five minutes ago. No, eight <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> well, I, look, man. I mean, if my timing isn't good here, you know, it's okay to say no. This is probably the best timing of the day because, like I said, it's starting about four o'clock. It, it becomes dog fest, walk fest, bike fest, dinner fest. So, wow. Oh, so, actually, in other words, actually, busy fest, like super. Busy. Yeah. So you just you literally you literally came in at the exact moment you could have come in. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing. I'm not famous for my perfect timing. So uh, thank you very much. No, yeah. You made my great. day. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when uh, when when do you guys do? Uh, September the 25th. Ah, five days to two play. Oh, well. For the Perhaps October two. thing, you mean? Or? No, no, because my uh, my birthday's the 20th. Oh, well, hey, we got it as close as we could. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, that that's a, uh, it's a guideline. It's all, it's it's all, yeah, it's not a rule. It's a guideline. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool, man. you got to be bouncing off the walls. Okay, see what happened was I didn't want to make a huge thing out of this on um, on Facebook. I'm one of those people that think that there's look, there's just certain things that do not belong on uh, on social media in most cases, sure. right? Sure. Show up at uh, you know back home. I'm exhausted. You know the dragon and everything, and you know all you've had is road food and everything. And um, you know wifey comes with, hey, so I'm pregnant. <laughs> and it's I, there's even a video of it and I gotta tell you it's like I think I even said that you know like between the exhaustion and the road food and all this stuff you know I think I'm actually taking the news pretty well you know <laughs> and um, but yeah so it's uh, I don't know it, it for her I think she'd had her suspicions for a while it, for me this was completely out of left field so wow <laughs> here <Wow>. we are <laughs> yeah that's uh that's kind of how it works. That's, we, uh, I think. Hey, everybody. My name is Trennis Magnus, and I host a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Here at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, We usually talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, because those are my favorites, but every once in a while, all that stuff gets put on pause so that I can wander through the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. I've really come to adore the works of J.R.R. Tolkien over the past several years, and so I occasionally record episodes about it. This is Radio Free Isengard. 
Radio Free Isengard is an irregular feature of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, which could consist of subjects such as movie discussions, book reports, character analysis, gushing over Howard Shore's music, how awesome it would be to live in Hobbiton, or any of a million other possibilities. For one thing, I do a rewatch of the Lord of the Rings films every year, and I seem to have fallen into the habit of recording my thoughts on a given year's marathon. The point is that the subject matter could be anything, and you never really know what might be coming next. So join in on the fun of Radio Free Isengard, an irregular feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, only at 2TrueFreaks.com.